The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. In the five years since the attacks on September 11, 2001, Wharton Professor of Operations and Information Management Howard Kunruther has collaborated with members of the private and public sectors to determine how individuals and firms can be motivated to enhance security in our interconnected world. In a new book, Seeds of Disaster, Roots of Response, co-edited by Erwan Michel Kerjan, Kunruther and other contributors argue that the United States will continue to be at risk for low-probability, high-consequence events like 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina until the private sector and public leadership define who is accountable and develop strategies to persuade individuals and firms to invest in cost-effective, protective measures. But the path is not clear-cut. What incentive is there for investing in these measures when others haven't taken similar steps? How can organizations and ordinary citizens be motivated to move beyond self-interest? Kunruther and Michelle Kerjan have agreed to talk with me, Steve Guglielmi, Senior Editor at Knowledge at Wharton, and Robbie Shell, Editorial Director, about these issues. Thank you for joining us, Howard and Irwan. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Howard, you had been studying decision-making for low-probability, high-consequence events uh, before the attacks of 9-11. In what ways did 9-11 change your focus? Well, I think one of the big differences with 9-11 and some of the other events that we had looked at, and those events were uh, n- natural catastrophes and disasters principally, but uh, other low-probability events like uh, hazardous waste and the storing of um, uh, radioactive waste. Uh, in those events, you really didn't have a group that could respond to what you were doing. And I think what we are seeing with 9-11 is there's always a concern in terms of what the terrorists are going to do based upon what actions you will take. So that, that is one big difference. And the other uh, difference that uh, we can talk more about is that there's a whole set of interdependencies that exist when you're dealing with terrorist attacks and weak links and a variety of things that the terrorists can take advantage of that can hurt a much larger system than just the unit that might be attacked. Howard, in a recent article on interdependent security, you raised the example of a bomb that terrorists concealed in a checked bag on Malta Airlines in 1988, which ultimately led to the explosion of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. Question to both of you, how does this illustrate the problems associated with interdependent security? Well, let me start, and Erwan, I know, may want to say a few words uh, and broaden this to some of the other things that are part of uh, the book that he's co-edited. I think in uh, the the Pan Am 103 crash, which came really to our attention, uh, certainly in 1988, but then after 9-11 again, uh, raises the following issues. And it's an issue that Jeff Heal, a professor at Columbia University, and I have been spending some time thinking about. Uh, In this particular case, a bomb was loaded at an unsecured airport in Gozo Airport in Malta. It was transferred to a feeder plane in Frankfurt, transferred to Pan Am 103, and set to explode at over 28,000 feet, which is only after Pan Am, the Pan Am 103 plane left uh, Heathrow. 
There was nothing that Pan Am could do about preventing that accident short of inspecting all its bags because this was a transferred bag. And so this is one example of interdependencies on two levels. One is it shows that some weak link, in this case uh, Gozo Airport, could actually cause a crash in an entirely different part of the world. And secondly, it also shows that there may have to be some very, very strong steps of coordination that would take place because up until really uh, maybe a year or two ago, the only airline in this case that ever inspected every bag was El Al and all other airlines. Once a bag was actually loaded, it stayed on that airline and it was assumed to be safe because it was assumed that security measures would have been taken at all the airports. But given the fact that international flights touch down in so many different countries, how can you as, uh, assure that sort of global uh, interaction and, and uh, how can you depend on, on airports in other countries to do the kind of thorough checking that, that you would want done? This has been one of the issues that has really faced us after 9-11. And we have a very different view of airline security now, as we all know, given all of the checking that is taking place all over the world. So in some sense, 9-11 changed our view, uh, where beforehand, it was this was all viewed as a problem that each of the individual airlines faced. And now it's a problem not only that airports face, that, the, that society faces, and a global society in this case. Yeah, I, was, I was going to say that I mean, we have to mix globalization of social and economic activity with just-in-time processes, meaning that you want everything now. And the counterpart of that, your growing risks you face are international by definition. So you're talking about homeland security all the time. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, what you're really talking here is international security and how you can secure not only the homeland, but uh, different interdependent countries. Well, what happens when one entity invests in protective measures such as, as vigilant luggage checking, but others don't? Does that become a disincentive? It, beca it comes very much of a disincentive if it turns out that you know that no one else is taking the steps that you are taking. And let me give you one example on a very different level that might illustrate this. If you want to take protection against, let's say, a fire that might occur in your apartment and you feel you should be rewarded by having taken those measures in some sense and think about the fact that this is going to cost you something, the, the fact that you would know that no one else has taken those protective measures provides a disincentive for you to do so because you are aware of the fact that a fire could spread from one of the other home apartment units to yours. And so we really have a challenge in this area of how we coordinate and get uh, everyone to work together. It also requires, and I think this is one of the important parts, and I know this is one of the features of the book that Erwan has co-edited, is bringing the public and private sector together. You need to have regulations. You need to have well-enforced standards. For example, in the example that I just illustrated, a building code or some building codes become an important aspect. Just like in airline security, we have a whole set of different ways that we're viewing the problem today. I was going to add to that, when, when you consider what we call critical infrastructure services, so transportation, postal operation, water supply, food supply, well, in the U.S., a large majority of these critical services is owned by the private sector. I'm talking about 80 to 85 percent of these critical services owned by the private sector. So you have a real challenge where on the one side you have the Department of Homeland Security and others trying to do a good job, but really the expertise 
time and, and financial commitment is on the private side. And then on the private side, well, it's a very competitive world. So if you're not the one to take the lead on that, uh, along with a critical mass of your competitor, you won't, you won't do anything because you don't want to be the first one to spend a lot of money investing in, uh, in costly mitigation measures. Well, so what is what's the future of the private sector and and public leadership working together, working together to develop some sort of accountability? Well, I, I think that, I think that was the theme of, of the book, and we have uh, twenty six authors, uh, including Howard, in this book, a uh, joint venture between Wharton, uh, Harvard, and George Mason University. Uh, the book is called "Seeds of Disaster: Roots of Response: How Private Action Can Reduce Public Vulnerability." And I think regulation is definitely part of the game, but it's not to see the public sector intervene. In, in very strong manner, it's much more to sit at the same table than decision makers in private sector saying, well, how can we help you doing a better job so you can integrate the security factor into your business model? Let me just add uh, to what Erwan just said, that I think that there are very, very important roles the private sector can play. Even within their own industry, you could have an important role of trade associations to enforce a variety of norms and standards within industry so that you can actually set a tone for what should be done. And in the airlines, I think this is happening more, where you have an airline association in the chemical industry. There are a variety of these associations that now are really put in the forefront in terms of ways that they can actually take steps to avoid having what they would say the hard hand of government coming in. But if you don't have that kind of coordination, then I think you're going to really have to rely on some kind of uh, government involvement so that uh, industry recognizes this is not just their problem. And one other point that Erwan emphasized, and it's an important one, it's the level playing field aspect on the competitive side, that if you have one group that feels it's going to want to take a, a step and encourage a set of costs. If they know no one, none of the others are doing this, they're going to be very hesitant to take and invest those costs themselves for the re- profitability reasons alone. So you have that government possibly playing the level level playing field role. And you have also to ca- and to take in some fashion a long term view. I mean, most of businesses are kind of myopic in sense because you you need to prove return on investment in the next two weeks or two months. Here you're talking about long term investment for security measures. So the business model is different as well. Mm-hmm. We have an acronym for that called NIMTOF, uh, which we're using uh, these days. Not in my term of office. <laughs> Variation of NIMBY. <laughs> right. Another, <laughs> right. Another version, right? right. <laughs> exactly. What is the best case scenario for minimizing the damage of the next Katrina? Well, th- this, is, this is an area that um, we have been very, very interested in, in our, the risk center uh, that, we're in, that Aaron and I are both uh, actively uh, involved in. Uh, here at Wharton, and that is how do you take steps before a disaster to avoid the damage afterwards? Our provost at Penn, Ron Daniels, was very active in pushing this and, in fact, got a a whole group of us started in thinking about this issue one month after Katrina, and there's a book uh, that came out on risk and disaster that really was uh, pushed by virtue of just the question that you're raising. How do you take these steps beforehand in dealing with the risk? 
I think the key issues that are, are challenging here is that no one wants to think about these disasters until after they occur. And I think we even saw that after Katrina. There was almost the hope that it wouldn't occur and the feeling that if we could just wish it away, it would go away. And I think that what needs to be done is there has to be a very systematic analysis, both on the part of the public sector, as to what action should be sort of taken beforehand, and the levies being a very good example. There were real indications and studies done that New Orleans was a city that was going to be hurt very badly. And the Times-Picayune got a Pulitzer Prize for their articles. And I will tell you, there's an article in the National Geographic in October 2004 that I read to my wife after Katrina, not telling her where it came from. And she was sure it was a Katrina scenario, but there it was nine months before Katrina occurred with exactly almost to the word what happened there. So there was all sorts of evidence beforehand. We have to do the appropriate kind of benefit-cost analysis on the public sector. For the private sector, it's a great challenge because we really face what uh, Erwan and I have both been talking about on myopia, where the idea is people don't really see the benefits of these investments where they have these upfront costs that will be required to make a house safer, for example, where you'd have to improve the roof or you could shore it up in one way or another, make it floodproof or earthquake-proof in the case of a California home. And that really raises problems because people feel that they aren't going to get enough back for their investment. So we have to think about ways of dealing with that problem and getting people through loans or other ways of spreading the cost so that they will want to take those steps beforehand. Big challenge. I was just going to add that when you have one disaster per decade, that's something. But when you got four hurricanes hitting Florida in 04, and then three or even four major hurricanes in 05, well, just the meaning of what, what is a disaster and how you incre- include that disaster preparedness into your public policy or private strategy becomes one of the main uh, main important point for decision makers. I mean, I'm, I'm talking here CEOs or I mean secretary and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. We have a project with uh, between uh, Wharton and the World Economic Forum on global risks, and the fact that the World Economic Forum in, in Davos put that question of global risk on the table on the agenda of top decision makers in the world is something very very important because uh, you integrate that into uh, a new way of thinking about these catastrophes. You've both talked about uh, ways to motivate the adoption of protective measures as trade associations getting involved, maybe the threat of government regulation. What what specific economic incentives can be used uh, to to encourage people to adopt pro? protective, proactive measures. Well, let me give you one example, Robbie, of of that in the context of what we were just talking about on Katrina. Uh, And thinking about the idea of trying to get an individual to take a protective step and recognizing that that step, that measure might cost uh, $1,000 or $2,000 and they feel they're not going to live in their house for that long, they can't afford it, I live from payday to payday is something we often hear. Uh, And at the same time, they were... 
one should recognize that when they take that measure, they are really reducing the risk. They are reducing the risk to the point where if they are paying, buying insurance, which most people are required to buy on the wind portion anyway, and many, many of them on the flood portion for hurricanes, they should be able to get a premium discount for having taken that measure. Now, if we can provide some kind of a way to bring the private sector together, and in this case, I would say the insurance industry and the banking community together, so that one could be given an individual. So, Robbie, you're living in in the New Orleans area for the the moment now, and you want to put in uh, this measure. You you take a home improvement loan. You get it from your bank. It's a 20-year loan. It gets tied to your mortgage. It's a relatively small payment that you have to make each year for that measure. And because it's something that has improved the quality of your house and and reduced the loss from a hurricane, you should get something back on your insurance premium. If it's a cost-effective measure, you're going to come out ahead because you will actually then wind up paying a lower amount and having your insurance premium reduced more than the cost of the loan per year. And you don't have to think about that measure anymore. That loan will stay with the mortgage if you happen to move. Now, what's interesting, and this hasn't been implemented, by the way, we're all, so this is one way of, (laughs) of trying to push for trying to get the banks and insurers to come together. You have to have the insurance rates reflect the risk. That's very important. Otherwise, there's no incentive for the insurance industry to give you a premium discount if they're, they're forced to subsidize those rates. And that is a major problem we face today. And measuring that risk. And measuring that risk, right. which can be done. And there is a lot of data. We have modeling companies, and we are that, that's more sophisticated, a lot easier to do that on hurricanes than on terrorism. But if you measure the risk and you can, and you can get the premium to reflect it, and you then say, I'm going to give you a, this premium discount because this measure is a cost-effective measure, the insurance industry comes out ahead because they have lower losses. They also have to pay less for their protection against catastrophic losses. If a lot of houses do that, they pay less for reinsurance. The banking industry comes out ahead because they're better protected for the mortgages. And all of us as taxpayers and citizens in this country come out ahead because we have to pay less for disaster relief. So when we put it on the table this way, it looks like a no-brainer, a win-win-win. When you deal with the real world, you've got regulatory issues in place. You have state regulation of insurance that has to be looked at and we're currently involved in a major project now with uh, our, our Wharton, with uh, Georgia State and the Insurance Information Institute on the future of disaster insurance. And one of the principles that we are advocating is rates have got to be reflect the risk in order to be able to promote the measure that you're asking uh, come forward. Otherwise, it will not happen. It will not happen easily anyway. Yeah, two, two, two points on that quick. Uh, the reason why we push for insurance, I mean, insurance industry doesn't have a good publicity most of the time. Uh, even, I mean, especially so after disaster. Well, what people don't realize most of the time is that the insurance industry today, 2006, is the largest industry sector in the world. It's three times the size of the oil industry in terms of revenue generated. So it's, when you think about it, insurance is everywhere. So as a market mechanism here at Wharton, who is definitely in favor of <laughs> market operating well, uh, insurance can be that bridge between mitigation and risk financing. Uh, and just to answer your question, what, what could be done? Well, I, I mean, we think that at the end of the day, customers will have an important role to play. I mean, just think about 20 years ago when you talk about car safety, uh, it was not a marketing 
thing. I mean, talk about car safety. Now, now you see you see ad on TV and everywhere talking about five star rating safety for cars, and that's really a, a marketing argument. Can we do the same thing, the same t type of job, like 10 years from now, where security becomes a marketing argument as well? Uh, and just going back to 9-11 for uh, to maybe wrap this up, Howard, in your in your article, you noted that um, you know 9-11 is something that maybe couldn't have been avoided, but what would have helped to maybe minimize peripheral damage? Well, that's a real challenging issue, and we all look back five years now that 9-11 has occurred, and I think that notion of better vigilance is clearly there. But I think that really what we, what we needed to recognize, first of all, is that this is something that could not be done in many ways by the private sector alone. And I think that is something that has we have come to recognize now, but it took 9-11 for us to be aware of the fact. We formed the Department of Homeland Security only after 9-11 because nothing had happened. And so 9-11 illustrates the problem we face in all of these areas of low probability events. It's only afterwards that we really pay attention. But when we think about this, we had all sorts of evidence before 9-11 that there were major problems here and we ignored them. The insurance industry ignored them. They didn't charge a penny for terrorism insurance before 9-11, despite the fact that we had the World Trade Center attempt in 1993 in Oklahoma City, but they didn't see it as a threat. Now, if the insurance industry wasn't paying attention, and uh, that's an indication that a lot of us were not paying attention, and yet we had all sorts of evidence in other parts of the world, including our own country, that this was a problem. So I think it's really vigilance and trying to be prepared and trying to say that this may happen to us and that we can't just take it for granted and tune out of these events. And I think we're doing more of that now. And I think this fifth anniversary of 9-11, coupled with the first anniversary of Katrina, has put all of these events very much on the radar screen of everyone. And we're paying attention to these issues in a way we hadn't done before. Thank you both. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.com. Dot upen.edu. Dot